if you're, uh, if you're new, again, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We are beginning, as Steve said, a little bit of an inception series, a series within a series, uh, and it's called the Training of the Twelve. Luke chapter 9 is devoted to Jesus' training of the twelve disciples. Um, so if you got a Bible, why don't you go ahead and grab it, and let me give you a little bit of a running start as to what we're going to talk about today. Let me also just make one mention of what we're doing this evening, which is our monthly prayer gathering. Our monthly prayer gathering happens at 5 p.m. down in the chapel. Uh, so if you want to come and pray for all of the stuff that we have going on here in the life of our church, uh, going into a new semester, a new year, ministry year, come and join us at 5 p.m. this evening. We'll all be there probably with these shirts on. So it's going to be, it's going to be awesome. Uh, Luke chapter 9 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 9. Now, um, if you haven't been with us, I'll, I'll just tell you quickly in 30 seconds what's been happening in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 8 finishes with three dramatic stories of Jesus as, as Lord, as God. Jesus as God over the natural, over the spiritual, and over the physical. And all along the way, throughout the course of Jesus' um, ministry, the disciples have been handpicked to, part, to uh, experience who Jesus is and what he is doing to share and to preach and to teach and to heal and to raise the dead and to do all those things. Uh, under the power of God as he takes really front and center stage as God's Messiah. Now, up to this point in the story of Luke and really in the story of the other gospel writers, the disciples have been kind of side characters. They've been with Jesus and next to Jesus, and you can imagine all of the amazing things that they've seen throughout the course of Jesus' ministry. All the healings, all the demonic possessions that Jesus drives out, even from last week in chapter 8. You've seen the garrison demoniac healed. You've seen the two women, the two daughters, the dead little girl, the woman with the issue of blood. You've seen Jesus calm the wind and the waves. And everybody's been so impressed. Everybody's been so amazed. Everybody has said in the group of the disciples, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him. But in Luke chapter 9, something changes. There's a shift in Jesus's ministry methodology. At this point in Jesus's ministry, he's about halfway through. He's about 18 months until he goes to the cross. And in Luke chapter 9, what Jesus now does is begin to train the 12. And all throughout Luke chapter 9, we're going to have seven different weeks in Luke chapter 9. They're going to give you themes and essential ideas about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, the Christian life is more than just a selfish, inward, me and Jesus approach to my spirituality. It's more than merely spiritual progress individually. I mean, I know we're all individuals in this room. We all have sins and struggles and fears and worries that we bring into this place that we seek to make sense of in light of God and his word. But if that's the whole of the Christian life, then we all live our lives fundamentally looking to Jesus alone and to have our own private devotions. And really, we don't need the community and the relationships of the church and the body. And what you're going to see here is that Jesus doesn't just, doesn't just have a personal relationship. And we've seen that in Jesus' training of these first disciples that he's called. He's called Peter on the boat who confessed, Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's called Matthew at the tax collector booth to say, you, follow me. Peter, James, and John left their whole fishing career and went and followed Jesus. Very individual calls into ministry with Jesus Christ. But today, Jesus in his training of the 12 is now going to send them out. He's going to make them get in the game. 
He's going to impart power to them and they are going to experience what it's like to be a part of the very mission of God. So right as we start, what you're going to have today is the precursor, is the prelims, are the fundamental expectations that Jesus wants every disciple of his to know and understand. And what I want to communicate really today through the course of our time together is that you are invited into the greatest ministry opportunity this world has ever seen. Your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is meant for more than just intimacy with him. It's meant to make an impact. You are meant to live your life with such uh, a focus on the north star of Jesus Christ that everything else is reinterpreted and reordered in light of who he is. In fact, that's been the singular thing that Luke has been trying to get our eyes on in his gospel. Who is this man? Who is he? That he can calm wind and waves, that he can cast out thousands of demons, that he can raise the dead. Is he worthy of following? And now the disciples are going to gather around and Jesus is going to huddle up with them and he's going to give them the opportunity to experience the same ministry that he has been doing. Now this is a very unique section of the scriptures. But it's one, I think, with very significant lessons for us as a church. So if you're new to the church, let me just say that one of the things that is very core, a very central idea at Citadel Square is that we are all in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, because he has forgiven our sins, he has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, and he now presents us as clean and pure and spotless before his heavenly Father. That we are now called into a relationship with him where we are meant to make his priorities our priorities. So if you're new to the church, just if we take the Jesus stuff out just for a minute, I want to just tell you the idea of discipleship is that you are following somebody. You're following something. Something is training you. Something has the North Star effect in your life that is determining your expectations, your hopes, your fears, your ambitions, your dreams for the future, your hope for what's to come. You are actively being discipled. And the question that the Bible has to say for us and the question that Jesus has to say for us is whether or not you're being discipled well. Whether or not you're becoming who God wants you to be. And what Jesus is going to do here in this text is give you the perspective that you and I need to understand what discipleship with Jesus means. What does that mean? When I say the term discipleship with Jesus and taking your next step with Jesus, what does that even mean? Is that just kind of like a handy Christian saying? What does it mean? What should I expect out of that experience? If you're telling me to follow Jesus, what should it look like? And that's what you're going to find in this text here in Luke chapter 9, all right? So let's jump in here, ask God for his grace and to understand what he has to teach us here today. Father, for these few minutes as we gather and we look into your word, I pray that you would shape our expectations, that you would shape our ambitions, that you would shape us as a elder team, a staff team, that you would shape us as Citadel Square and all the members and the people in this room, that we would turn our eyes and heart to you. That we would submit our lives to you, our marriages to you, our money to you, our ambitions and hopes and dreams. We'd open our hands to those things and put them in your hands and say, God, whatever you want to do with us, would you do it? 
Would we be humble and receptive and sensitive to your spirit here this morning as we look into your word? That you would shape us, that you would challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you would exhort us and encourage us where we need to be exhorted and encouraged. That we would repent of sin as we need to as we look into your word, that your spirit would convict and draw our eyes and hearts to the mercy and the forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ alone. Most of all, Father, we pray that we might be found to be faithful disciples here in Charleston, South Carolina in 2023, that we would walk out the truth that is in your word and honor you with our lives. So, Father, for these few minutes, bless us as we search the scriptures, as we understand what you have to say to us. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 9, y'all there? Let's take a look. Luke chapter 9. Verse 1, and he called the 12 disciples, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. Now that's a pretty amazing verse, isn't it? Let me draw your, just draw your attention to one thing right off the bat is that Jesus doesn't call one guy to go and carry on the ministry of Jesus. Now who cares and why does that matter? Well, it matters because Jesus calls a community of men together. In fact, this characterizes the majority of your New Testament. The majority of your New Testament looks to a corporate group of people who are all looking to and confessing that Jesus is the Son of God. And as Jesus begins the training of the next generation of men who will go forward with the truth of who he is and his identity, he calls them together to do it. Now this characterizes the majority of the New Testament, that when you come to the New Testament letters that after Jesus is ascended, what you find out is the New Testament characterizes the body of believers as a body with individual members who all work in function and in concert with one another, all gifted differently, all empowered differently, but with the same head under the headship of Christ. Peter writes about the New Testament church and he calls it a building, a temple, with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone and we as individual stones as part of it, making up the whole structure. So right from the beginning, when Jesus calls the disciples into ministry, he doesn't call one guy and send him. He calls 12 guys together and says, you all are now being handed the ministry that I have been doing. And you've been handed a very particular part of the ministry that I've been doing. All the way from the earliest parts of Jesus' entrance onto the scene in Luke chapter 4, it's been characterized by these two words. He's given them two things, power and authority. Power is the ability, authority is the right. And it's characterized Jesus' ministry. Jesus becomes on the scene in Luke chapter 4, And he reads from the scroll of Isaiah talking about he has been, the spirit of God has anointed him to proclaim uh, freedom to the captives and to preach the good news to the poor. And then the very next instance that happens at the end of Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus casts out a demon. And the people respond in the synagogue as Jesus casts out a demon is saying, what is this word? He preaches with power and authority. No other Old Testament prophet has had the right to hand somebody else the very power of God. Do you know that? So that Jesus, by by this statement, distinguishes himself from any other Old Testament prophet, preacher, teacher, philosopher. 
Because Jesus himself has the right and has the authority to hand to the disciples his very power and his very right to do two things. To have authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So that Jesus right from the beginning of this commissioning is in an altogether different category than just being a good teacher. Amen? That Jesus himself says, I have the right to hand out the very power of God. Which tells us something very important about who Jesus is. But from the beginning, when Jesus huddles up the disciples and has all 12 of these guys come together, the disciples up to this point have been very nondescript individuals. He hasn't called anybody who's been remarkably impressive, has he? They've been pretty basic individuals in the life and times of Israel. And when he gathers them together, the thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the one who gives the disciples the power. Which means, let me just by reverse, the disciples have no power to do what Jesus is calling them to do. Okay, well, why does that matter? Because an inherent part of discipleship is recognizing that you and I have zero spiritual power. I, I'm a pastor. I do this for a living. And I have zero spiritual power in, to make any changes in your life whatsoever. Do you know that? I can't do anything. I can stand up and tell you about Jesus and talk about Jesus, encourage you in Jesus and point you to his word, but I can accomplish absolutely nothing in your life. And neither could the disciples. The disciples have no power whatsoever. They're completely powerless. See, you don't get spiritual power as a result of just aging and getting more experience. You're not born with it. You don't get it because you get a degree. I have a master's degree. It's given me zero spiritual power. It's given me education, confidence in my background, some skills that are handy. But I have fundamentally no spiritual power whatsoever unless it comes from Jesus Christ. Unless Jesus Christ empowers the disciples to do what they cannot do, these disciples are failures from the start. If Jesus sits back and he goes, go on y'all out and do ministry, what are they going to do? They can accomplish nothing. This is why Jesus says in John 15, apart from me you can do nothing. So the very precursor to discipleship with Jesus, the very first thing you need to know if you want to follow Jesus, is that you are completely empty of any spiritual power whatsoever. You are totally and holistically dependent on the power that comes from Jesus to accomplish anything of any spiritual value. Are you encouraged yet? Is this the class you wanted to take with Jesus? Number one, you got nothing. Okay, I'm with you so far, Jesus. But they've been given power. They've been given dramatic power. They've been given the most significant heavenly spiritual power ever. Nobody has power like these guys. They have all authority in the spiritual realm and they have all authority in the physical realm. There's not one disease that will stop their ministry. There's not one thing that they will face where they will say, I don't know and I can't do anything. There's not one demonic presence and oppression that they won't be able to handle. And Jesus himself puts the power into their hands. Now, that's the power. Let's look at the purpose. Because the power is not just for magic. The power that the disciples have is given for a purpose. And Jesus gives you the purpose of this power, the purpose of why they have this spiritual power in verse 2. Verse 2, 
and he sent them out too. Well, here's the purpose statement. Here's the reason he sends them out. He doesn't just send them out to arbitrarily cast out demons and arbitrarily heal people. He's going to connect the spiritual power that he's given them to the spiritual message that he's given them to proclaim. And number two, he sent them out to proclaim two things, the kingdom of God and to heal. See, the primary reason the disciples are sent out is to preach. The disciples are sent out with a message that is validated by signs so that people would see and hear the signs and see and hear the preaching and put them together, which has characterized Jesus' ministry up to this point. Remember at the beginning of Luke chapter 4, when Jesus goes and begins to heal people, and he heals people all day long into the night. He goes out early in the morning, prays, people come and try to find him, and he goes, I must go to the other villages to preach, for that is why I've come. Jesus will not be reduced to merely a healer. He will not be reduced to merely somebody who handles demons. He's not an exorcist. Jesus is here to preach the kingdom of God. So the disciples are now given the same spiritual power from Jesus and they're given the same preaching ministry of Jesus to put them together and to go out. To proclaim and to heal. Now, the healing is an interesting thing because all the way through Jesus' ministry, have you noticed how Jesus' ministry always does good to people? Have you noticed that there hasn't been any time where Jesus comes out and Jesus does bad to people? But Jesus' identity with his preaching and the ministry that contacts the human suffering, the oppression of the demonic, the physical diseases that he encounters, as the king steps into that dysfunction and makes it whole again, the idea that you are meant to see is that Jesus does mankind good. He cares about the suffering. He cares about the hardship. He cares that men and women are oppressed. He cares that disease ravages the body. So as Jesus hands this ministry to the disciples, they now preach and they do good to people. So that as Jesus and his ministry enters into a world characterized by demonic suffering, disorder, dysfunction, disease, all of those things, Jesus is bringing a message that the king of the universe has good and does good for his people. You remember when we looked at the Gerasene demoniac? That this man came and was, after he encountered Jesus, he was seated, clothed, and in his right mind. What happened before Jesus when he was under the power of the devil? He would cut himself, he would scream, he was among the tombs, he was ostracized socially, spiritually, he was broken, he was angry. He would wrench chains away that no one could stop this man. But when he encounters Jesus, he's whole again. And that's the heart of Jesus coming through in his ministry. So the disciples are given, right from the beginning, an awareness of their total lack of power. But they're also given a reminder that ministry is for the good of people. Do you believe that? that? That the ministry that God puts into the hands of his disciples is that people would know and experience good. Now, that's simple enough. You could almost just end at verse 2, right? We expect him to go out. We expect him to travel. We expect him to do good things. But Jesus has a discipleship curriculum that is one of the best. If not, the best. That's an understatement. Did you catch that? 
Let's look at Jesus' discipleship curriculum. We've got the disciples who have power that they didn't have before. They've understood the heart of Christ as he goes out to heal and to care for people. They marry the preaching of Jesus as the Son of God along with the miracles to validate those things and unite those things. But now Jesus is going to give some restrictions. He's going to put some reins on these 12 who are getting ready to go out and do ministry out of eyeshot and earshot of Jesus. They're going to walk away from Jesus. Jesus is going to remain where he is, and they're going to go out among the villages and preach all over the place. But Jesus isn't going to be there. So what Jesus is going to do is give them some marching orders. There are certain things you can do and certain things you can't do. There are certain principles and rules that I'm going to give you as the disciples that not everybody else has. There are certain restrictions that you've got to live and abide by because this ministry is too important for you to go out and have no restrictions whatsoever. This ministry is too important to allow absolute spiritual power with zero restrictions whatsoever, right? That's why you don't give the lawnmower to the toddler. You don't give the immature, absolute freedom whatsoever. So here are the, the restrictions or the rules that Jesus is going to give about this new ministry endeavor they're about to step out on. So look at verse 3. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. Don't you just feel that ambition and that everybody's ready? We got 12, we got the power, we're ready to go, we're ready to heal. And Jesus says, don't take anything for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Essentially two shirts. Wear one t-shirt. Isn't that a weird verse? I mean, because when Jesus says that, you can almost feel everybody going, what? We're taking the bags off and we're not taking the sandals? We don't take the staff? We're not ready to go? You ever go to, we have, if you don't know me and my family, and you're new, we are a family that has six kids. And anytime that you go and do anything with six kids, uh, you need to get prepared. Uh, we often like to go to the beach, because it's one of the few places where we have lots of arguments, because of, you know, we're just, everybody's just free to do whatever they want at the beach. And when you get ready to go to the beach with six kids, you've got to bring you know, towels and the sunscreen and the shade and the hat and the other hat and then the, uh, the blanket that the four-year-old wants this thing and she wants to bring the toys and you've got to bring the snack and then you've got to bring uh, the sandals and you've got to bring the bag and you've got to bring snack number two because we're going to be there for a while. Then you've got to bring extra water. You've got to bring something to hose them off. You've got to bring the, you know, you've got to, like, like preparation is close to godliness when you have six kids. Like, it, it like, you've got to get ready. And my wife has that gift. She has that gift of being able to foresee that in 127 minutes, someone's going to have a catatonic fit and they're going to need these fruit snacks. <laughs> and sure enough, at a minute 126, everybody's starting to get wobbly and Suzanne is like, fruit snacks. Everybody's happy. It's incredible. It is incredible. What was I talking about? Got it. You're about to embark on the greatest ministry, you know, missionary endeavor ever. You've been given absolute spiritual authority and power that only Jesus has. And it's like Jesus goes, hey, don't bring your charger. 
Don't bring your debit card. Just wear Crocs. <laughs> I know they got holes in them, and they look funny. You don't need an extra t-shirt. You don't need to worry about gas. I just want you to go. I want you to be explicitly, Jesus says, it doesn't, Jesus doesn't say, don't go without luxuries. He says, go without things that you naturally and ordinarily would have. I want you to live in this ministry endeavor with a, with a disciplined insufficiency. Because this ministry is too important for you to get all clogged up with all the things that you think you need to bring for the sake of this ministry to happen. I mean, I, it, it really like hit me this week as I look at just ministry in my own life in general, how often I have a tendency to worry about things like this. Where's my, where's my bag and my phone and my book and my thing? And do I need sandals? Am I going to be there? Shoes? Or how long am I going to be there? Should I bring the thing? Do I need an extra t-shirt? I'll just put one in the back just in case. And then we can easily reduce ministry down to these kind of things, can't we? To think that my greatest problem in ministry and following Jesus is that, oh man, I didn't bring the tunic and the shirt and all these things. And so Jesus sends these guys out and goes, be unprepared. Be explicitly insufficient for what you're going to face. Don't be prepared. Well, why? Why would Jesus enforce a rule like this? Now, I think the reason, this ministry, just to give you an idea of where this falls in the Bible, this ministry for them is a short-lived ministry. It happens essentially, they have the spiritual power of Jesus of healing and casting out the demonic, and they lose it by the end of this chapter. In fact, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and they come down, the disciples are there and they're unable to cast out a demon. By the end of Luke's gospel and the end of the other gospels, Jesus says, wait until you receive power from on high. So it's as if Jesus gives them power, but only for a short time, only for a short-lived purpose. And he makes sure in Jesus' discipleship curriculum of those who follow him that you are powerless, you don't have the power that you need. You need to be reminded of the heart of Jesus Christ to alleviate suffering and point people to the person and work of Christ. And you also need to make sure that you are insufficient. Now why Jesus does this is very interesting. Look at verse 4. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. Uh, there, from there, depart. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. During this time, you would have uh, wandering preacher teachers who would essentially make uh, their job teaching spiritual ideas, teaching from the Old Testament, being kind of wandering rabbis of the time. And they typically, some commentators think, they'd be characterized by all the things that Jesus just said that you're not allowed to take. They'd be characterized by a staff and a bag and a backpack and an extra shirt and an extra pair of shoes because they're wandering, wandering and they're traveling. And they're essentially people who are out there who are panhandling. 
They teach, they get some disciples, they go to the next house. They teach, they kind of like, they're kind of itinerant ministers. But Jesus restricts their ministry again by saying when you enter a home, when you are preaching and teaching and healing and you are received by people who believe your message, receive your message and desire to show you hospitality that you've got to stay in that home. Why would you stay in that home? Because if you're an itinerant preacher and they're serving chicken tonight at the Joneses' houses, but at the Smith houses, they're serving prime rib, where are you going to go? Yeah, you're going to go get the prime rib, aren't you? So he says, when people respond to your preaching and teaching and open their homes to receive you, you stay right there because this ministry is not about the perks. This ministry is about me. Your ministry, I didn't give you all authority over the demonic and all authority over the diseases so that you can go out there and build a ministry platform for yourself. When you are received by people who genuinely believe and hear and respond in faith to the truth of who I, uh, the truth that I am who I say I am, you stay right there. We are not going to make my ministry about what you can get out of it. Now, the disciples now are, have these restrictions in place to really address one of the most significant threats to all of us, which is our pride. Who likes getting compliments? Yeah, see, nobody, because you're all so humble. Isn't that great? Now, disciples, you have the self-discipline to stay right there. Let me ask you just a, a question. I think this, this really, what Jesus is trying to get at here is their humility. It's to recognize, you know, when over in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus will say, freely you've received, freely give. That ministry fundamentally isn't about a platform. It's not about popularity. It's about whether or not you're faithful to do what Jesus has called you to do. It's about whether or not you're faithful to point people to the person of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you, like, when's the last time that you served a brother or sister in Christ just because of how good Jesus has been to you? When's the last time that you were willing to go out of your way to sacrifice your time, energy, effort, and opportunities for the sake of someone else just because of how good Jesus has been to you? How you were willing to push pride away and to sacrifice for the sake of somebody else? Now, that's convicting, isn't it? Are you convicted yet? Let me make it worse. You ready? When's the last time, because of your faithfulness to Jesus, that you allowed someone else to serve you? Where you were so confident of your need to depend on Christ that you were willing to accept the ministry and the kindness and the goodness and the generosity of someone else to you. You know why that's a worse question? Because you don't like asking for help. You don't like experiencing what the disciples do right here where they have to confess we are powerless unless Jesus empowers us. We are insufficient unless God, through his provision in the hearts and minds of people who respond to what we preach and who are willing to bring us into their home, will actively provide for our needs. 
Ministry is not, a, for the disciples, is not a platform of more followers and lots of money. It's a disciplined refusal to take advantage of people. I will not allow ministry to become my platform to abuse the kindness and generosity of people who are responding to Jesus and who he says he is. We're going to be insufficient. We're not going to have what we need so that people would look at our ministry and say, it's not about us, it's about him. Now, that's the people who receive them. Let's look at the people who reject them. Look at verse 5. And wherever they don't receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is a pretty common ancient Near East custom. And it was a common custom particularly in and among the Jews. The Jews, as they went and left what's called the Holy Land, we still call it the Holy Land today, they would go and wander and go and do business and go and work and do all the traveling things that they would have to do. And inevitably, they would go through Gentile lands. They would come across Gentile people. And the Jews would have a very... Uh, a, a very uh, restrictive kind of ritual and ceremonial purity. So all kind of consumed around this idea of being clean and unclean, ritually clean, ceremonially clean, or ceremonially unclean and defiled. And what they would do is they depart from Gentile lands and they make themselves and they come back into the, Je the Jewish holy land. They would dust the dust off of their feet from their sandals from the Gentile lands as a way of saying, we are not bringing that defilement in here. You people are people without God. We've got God. We're going to make sure that the dirtiness and the defilement out there doesn't get on us because we don't want to dirty up God's place because we're God's people in God's land. So here's what Jesus just did. It's brilliant. Uh, you don't know this from Luke, but in uh, Matthew chapter 10... Jesus uh, gives you more explanation than what he does right here. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says to the disciples, don't go anywhere among the Gentiles. Don't go anywhere among the Samaritans. Go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Now, why does that matter? Because of the ministry that Jesus just gave to the disciples. Look at it again. Verse 5, wherever they do not receive you, where are they going? They're only going among Israel. Wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Which means here are these people, here are the Jewish people who believe in ritual purity and impurity, who believe in ceremonial purity and impurity. But when they encounter the preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ, their categories of ritual purification no longer matter. Because you aren't clean or unclean in God's sight because you go certain places or do certain things or avoid certain people. You are clean or unclean based upon your reception of this message. So when the Jews would hear the disciples going out and preaching that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God and validating that message with miracles, casting out demons, and healing. And the Jews would hear in their ears after the Jews would reject that message and then would watch an enacted parable against themselves as the disciples say, it's not them who are unclean, it's you who are unclean. Because you have refused the only one who is able to make you clean. 
It is a devastating blow to the pride of the Jews. It's a devastating blow to our pride, isn't it? To, be a, to, to have a message that says you are saved by grace and grace alone. There is nothing that you can do to make your life better, to take responsibility, to get an extra degree, to make a lot of money, to marry the right girl, to marry the right guy, to have the right kids, to make the right career moves that can make you clean before God. You are saved by grace and grace alone, by faith in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. That's the only way that you are made clean in God's sight. And for the Jews to hear that message would be shocking. It would be stunning to them. What are you saying? You're saying our rejection of this message means that we are unclean? We've never been unclean. We're God's people. But unless you, if you reject the message of Jesus Christ and who he is, you remain in your sin. So this is serious ministry business, is it not? You know where this event falls? This event, when Jesus says this, Luke doesn't give you this, Matthew does, but it's the second app, right when Jesus does this, he gives them these restrictions right after he's been rejected for the second time in his hometown. So Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected by the people who know and love him the best, the people who grew up with him, the people who watched him play Little League. The people who knew who he was, who knew his family, and for him to come into the city for the second time and for them to go, we want nothing to do with you. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected. And disciples, you're going to experience what I do as well. Verse 6, they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So just simply, those who were sent went. confident of the fact that they have no spiritual power apart from what Christ gives them. That they are totally insufficient to the task. They don't even have some of the basic necessities. They've got to be humble and reliant upon the goodness and the kindness of others. See, as spiritual leaders, what Jesus is doing is protecting their integrity. He's sending them out for the sake of the name. Expecting them to do ministry under the power of the Spirit in places where they are going to have to be men who will refuse the trappings of the day for the sake of the purity of the message. Because they're representing the king, which is an incredibly important part of our own discipleship, isn't it? In our own discipleship, we are representatives of Jesus Christ. So there are a lot of things that for Christians, when we are disciples and we are trying to make disciples, that we say they're off limits for us. We can't do that because the personal work of Jesus is too important. Because the integrity of the message is too important. Because this platform isn't about me, it's about me pointing your eyes to somebody who can make you clean. Now, that's pretty good so far, right? You with me so far? Now, there's just a few verses left, and for some reason, Luke decides to put these here. It's a very interesting thing that Luke does, but he gives you and he introduces you to, to it introduces you here again to Herod. He's only mentioned Herod two or three times in his gospel. One is sort of a timestamp for the beginning of ministry of John the Baptist. We knew briefly of, of Herod when he imprisoned John, but here Herod comes back on the scene, and Herod will see again at the end of the book, but it's kind of a minor chord that Luke plays for us right here, because what an incredible discipleship curriculum that you have from Jesus in the eyes of the disciples, right? 
I mean, everything is on the up and up. People are going to get healed. Demons are going to get cast out. We're going to have pride uh, eliminated. You're going to have humility and dependence and submission to Christ. You're going to have all of the character that Christ wants these disciples to have as evidenced by their willingness to receive anybody and be received by anybody who received their message. But now Herod shows up on the scene. You're kind of like, wah, wah, why is Herod here? I don't, I don't know. It feels weird. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed. Perplexed is a word that only Luke uses in Luke and in Acts. And it means to be at a total loss. Herod is essentially just confused. And you'll see why, but, but he's essentially confused by the rumor mill that's happening. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. And he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead. Imagine that's the statement that makes its way into the king's court. I'm sorry, who? He's what? You're going to have three references to being raised from the dead in two verses. There's the first one in verse 7. Verse 8, by some that Elijah had appeared. It was widely considered by the Jews because of a prophecy in Malachi that Elijah would come before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Hey, guess what? Elijah's back. What? So John and Elijah are back? Hang on, it gets better. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Three mentions of resurrection in two verses. So the rumor mill that is churning in the minds and hearts of the people who are experiencing not only Jesus' ministry, but now the ministry of these disciples who are now going through all the villages, preaching, teaching, and healing, and uh, pointing people to Jesus Christ is now no longer ignorable. You can kind of ignore one guy who's doing amazing things somewhere in your jurisdiction. But now you've got this guy and multiple teams of people who are now stirring up multiple villages who are now saying there's someone out there who can reverse the irreversible? There's someone out there who can conquer death? Verse 9. Herod said, John, I beheaded. And the finality of that statement causes lots of um, commentators to think that Herod is now wrestling. I don't know if he necessarily is wrestling with the news that's coming in. He's at least at a loss to go, I don't really know what to do with all these reports are coming back to me. But Herod, with kind of just a simple finality to the statement that he silenced this prophet, begins to struggle with nothing else, maybe not conviction, Certainly some curiosity. But he begins to struggle with an identity question. And he begins to struggle with really the most significant question anybody in this room can ask. John, I beheaded. But who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. See, the discipleship uh, training curriculum that Jesus has given to the twelve It's powerful. It's amazing. It's restricting them. It's forcing them to be humble and dependent. But really the point of their ministry is not so much the miracles. The point of their ministry is to introduce more and more people to this question. This is why I think Luke includes this here because Luke has consistently been trying to get us to ask and answer that question for ourselves. Who is Jesus? And guys, like, 
That's, that means so much more than just having a doctrinal statement. It means so much more than just going, well, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, divine, from the Father, sent from the Father, and he sent the Spirit. And he said, I've got very good theological thoughts about what it means to have Jesus and his identity and who he is and what he's like and what he says. I have good theology. Because here's Herod in the king's court asking that very question. And the people now who are able to answer that question are experiencing Jesus and spending time with Jesus and reordering their lives around Jesus. They're being called by Jesus in the relationship with him, right? They're reorienting everything in their life around him. Herod may ask a very simple question, but Herod doesn't reorient any of his life around Jesus. Because to ask and answer the who is Jesus question demands a holistic life change. If you believe that Jesus is God, really, then everything in your life should reorient to that truth. It should reorient the things that you read, the things that you think about. It should reorient your sexuality. It should reorient how you use your money. It should reorient how you think about your time, your career, your extra free time. It should reorient everything. Because that's who the disciples are. That's what it means to follow Jesus. All but one of the disciples will be martyred. And you've got to think as they go to their death and they had this experience where they were given the very power of Christ, it became one of the most significant spiritual experiences of their whole life. That they would look back to and go, he is who he says he is and ultimately it will cost me everything. See, it means that for us to be disciples of Christ, you, listen, you're going to find something. Something's going to happen in your week. Maybe there's something happening right now where you and your life, you feel powerless. You feel totally insufficient to the task ahead. You have a relationship, a difficulty, a season that feels impossible. And our, our tendency, listen, my tendency is to run from those things. Amen? I hate being insufficient and powerless to the task. I hate having to be dependent on God and others. But there's no way around this that when I, when I read something like this, that what I say about Jesus in the moments where I'm powerless, where I am insufficient, and I am humbled by my lack of ability is perhaps the most significant spiritual progress I'm ever going to make. Because it means that I can take the trappings of my life that I think are main things, and they begin to fall away. They become like the t-shirt, the sandals, the bag, the staff. All of those things become, they start to fall away because the singular thing that matters to me is following Jesus and doing what he says. So the greatest stressors in my life, if you feel powerless, you feel humble, you feel dependent, you feel insufficient, is actually an invitation to know and walk with Jesus in a new and deep way. And the things that we so quickly want to push away actually become the curriculum for us to draw nearer to Christ and to be a part of what he's doing on this planet. Listen, if you're going to choose to follow Christ you are going to be invited into places of massive spiritual weakness. Older Christians, amen? You are going to face things that are impossible but for the power of Christ.
You are going to be humbled beyond your, what you thought you would be. Amen? You're going to face difficulties and hardships. But you're following Christ. So listen, our ambition as a church is to force the question. It's to force the question, who is Jesus? Who is, he, who is he really to you? Is he therapist? Is he counselor? Is he good teacher? Who is he really? Is he worth following? Is he worth betting on? Is he worth following after? Is he worth suffering for? Is he worth giving up your reputation for? Is he worth being misunderstood in our culture? Is he worth losing the cred at work? Is he worth working through a journey with a difficult kid for the sake of Jesus and what he wants to do in the life of that child? That's discipleship. That's what you signed up for. So don't be surprised that when our discipleship journeys put us in places where we are powerless, insufficient, and humble, that that is the very curriculum that our hearts need. And when we say we want to help you take your next step with Jesus, we want to be there and walk with you through those seasons of life. From our elders to our staff to our residents to every single pastor on our team. We care about you and we love you and we want to make sure that we are forcing the question and introducing you to deeper, intimate walk with Christ and introducing those who don't know him to the reality that there is somebody out there who can make you spiritually clean. Amen? That that's our hope. So you see how discipleship starts. An introduction to being insufficient. Are you encouraged? Hang on, it gets better. Stick with us for the next six weeks and we'll see what God has to teach us about being a disciple. Father, we pause and confess that no matter how much we don't like being insufficient to the task, we confess that we need your wisdom, we need your guidance, we need your power, we need you to provide in ways that we uh, never thought possible. Father, for those people this morning who face things that uh, make them feel powerless, that make them humbled, that make them feel insufficient, we pray that you would remind them of your great love for them, that even in these difficult seasons, they would have a close friend. They would have people in this church who would press the question asking them, well, who is Jesus really in this season? And that they would find great comfort and encouragement in this church to be the men and the women who follow you with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, who make you their North Star, whose ambition is to live lives who are pleasing to you. So, Father, we pray for your power. We pray for your grace. We pray that we might be found faithful in this season of life, in this place. In Jesus' name, amen.